Good morning. How many of you have seen the 1960 version of Psycho? Really, let me see you. Yeah, that was an incredible movie starring Anthony Perkins, Alfred Hitchcock. It was a crazy movie. Now, this movie had an effect on us as a nation. If you were a younger person when it came out, it was, well, first of all, it was the first song that, I mean, movie that gave us like a yink, 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 you know, a sound to go with the movie. That was pretty cool. Um, the other thing that it gave us was it changed a whole generation on how they take showers. I'm serious. I have not taken a shower the same way. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I'll be in the shower and I'll think I'll see it moved. And I'll be like, what happened? What changed? You know, there's somebody moving behind it. And, and it kind of freaked me out. But also it was the first time that the word psycho had been popularized and kind of became slang in American culture. And, and so um, I was reading in Philippians this week and I was, I was looking at what what God wanted to talk to us out of Philippians, I noticed something, I mean, you're gonna think this is weird, but I noticed something very psycho kind of going on in Philippians while Paul is writing. It's kind of like something that is kind of going on here. And let me read it to you and see if you can pick out the psycho part of what's taking place here. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He wanted to find out how the church was doing. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will come shortly. He's in prison at this moment. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also my, your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about your well-being. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. So there is some psycho stuff going on in the storyline of Paul's relationships, and not only his relationships, but relationships of the people um, that he's having with and, and his team, he, and he talks about it. And, but it's a different kind of psycho than maybe what we saw in the movie. It's gonna be this word that we're gonna to use today, isopsychos. It's not a word that you've probably have used before, it's, it's kind of a, a, a Greek word, but Paul uses this word to describe his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus' relationship with the people of Philippi. He's talking about this thing about the psyche of this relationship. He calls it isopsychos. 
Now, the English word that we would use would be kindred spirit, but I don't know how often you guys use that word. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't go around in some old English kind of way, and it's like I have such a kindred spirit, you know. Uh, we don't use that phrase, so I, I really felt like that word didn't speak to us that much. But this phrase, isopsychos, I thought was really interesting because you know, whenever you put iso in front of anything, it means that there's a similarity, there's an equality, there's a shared quality. And what Paul is talking about is that they had this shared mind. They had this similar mind. They had this equal mind. They had an alike mind, an isopsychos. And now this isn't some crazy sci-fi hive mind that you may be thinking about. I know some of you, I can see it on your faces, you're like, oh, you mean like Star Trek? You mean like the Borg, where they had this one shared mind? How many of you are tracking with me on Star Trek? Anybody? Oh, man, live long and prosper to you. Just don't give it up. Don't give it up. But it's, it's more than that, that Paul and his team were, were bringing their attitudes and their vision and their character into alignment with one mind, a similar mind, a shared mind, an isopsychos that was in play. And the interesting thing, it wasn't Paul's mind. It wasn't Paul's mind that they were all sharing. You would think, well, it must have been, everybody was lined up behind Paul because this is a good corporation and Paul was the head of the corporation and therefore everybody lines up right behind him and thinks the same way that, that Paul thinks. And it's like, no, this was not a team assembled around the mind of Paul. This was a, a team that was assembled around a greater mind. It was a team that was assembled around the attitudes and the vision and the character of Christ. This was their isopsychos. This was their psyche. This is how they thought. They shared this common psyche. Paul described it earlier to us in Philippians. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out on your own interests, but on the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves in another version, it says, have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there were a lot of words at the time that Paul's writing that could have been used for mind. And this is kind of really important because um, there's like four or five different words in the Greek that could have been used. And Paul uses this word where the root word is psyche, where we get psycho from, where we get soul, we get mind from. He could have used another Greek word um, that would have implied intellectual function. If you ever run into somebody and they're real sharp and they are able to solve problems, you say, man, he's got a really, she's got a sharp mind. You know, I mean, just real quick, able to figure things out. Or, or maybe a good mind may be the aptitude that the person has. They learn things really well. Or you could use mind in the sense of like uh, a database having a mind. Or, and that's how we use the word mind when we talk about AI, is we talk about a database of mind here. But the Apostle Paul didn't want to use any of those words. He didn't want to leave relationships left in the context of what you know or, or, or what the amount of data that you've got in your head. He wanted to use a word that went deeper than that. He wanted to go deeper into the psyche. He wanted to go into the realm of mind where intention and purpose and meaning dwell. 
I mean, it's the root of everything. It's like, it's like, it's like the apostle Paul said to you, what are you about, man? He's like, dude, what are you about? Um, and and it, I could normally say, well, where are you from? And we could get some data points. We could say, well, what do you do for a living? And you could give me some data points. You say, well, where'd you go to school? You give me some data points. And uh, where do you live right now? You give me some data points. But when somebody comes up to you and says to you, dude, what are you about? I mean, what are you about? Well, I work at the shipyard. No, no, I didn't ask you where you worked. I want to know what, what, is, what is your intention? What is your purpose? What is your meaning? And, and this is the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses when he's describing Timothy. He talks about this same mind, and everyone on Paul's team yielded to this greater mind, operating with this same mind, this isopsychos, this intention, this purpose, and this meaning. They may have had all different kinds of experiences that made up their, their uh, mind of knowledge. They may have had different uh, levels of intellect, like we have in this room today, if we were to talk about mind that way. But Paul was very concerned about the deeper mind the, that goes into you, what, what you are about, what is your purpose, what's your intentionality. This is big because, you know, if we could zoom out and use this, this concept, your marriage has a psyche to it or it has a, a psychos, a, a, a soulishness to it. It has a, a spirit, an intention, a meaning, and a purpose to it. Your relationships operate with a psyche or have an, like an overarching psychos. Like what do you guys, like when we, the movie Mean Girls, that was their psychos. That was what they were about. That's what they did. They were, they were just mean. And that was kind of like the context of their relationships. Your workplace has uh, this psyche or this psychos to it. And I know you're saying to me, well, Paul, you could easily just use, you mean culture. The reason why I don't want to use the word culture is because you can escape from responsibility by using that word. Because then you can blame other people's minds. You know, it's like, well, that's the mind of them. It's like, no, Paul is very concerned about what's the mind of you. What do you bring to culture? What is your mind? What is going on? Because culture is only a collection of a psyche of people. It is a psychos that has been conjoined together. It is a working of a mind. But Paul wants us to find out what's going on inside you. What are you about? I mean, uh, and, and churches have psyches. It's like, what is this church about? What is, are we about common data points? Like you might've come in and say, listen, are you guys Baptist? And, and that would have been, you would be appealing to a kind of mind. Like, okay, you would be mindful of a certain kind of systematic theology. Well, if I'm Baptist, that means that, okay, I do an altar call. That means I'm once saved, always saved. It may mean uh, I believe that the second coming of Christ will happen after a thousand-year reign called the millennium. I mean, and you could connect with us because, uh, you know, uh, maybe Baptist theology. And you would try to join with that mind. You say, well, you're Pentecostals. Oh, what, what do you mean? Well, it's like, do you guys speak in tongues? Do you believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in all? You know, you could go through that and try to identify with that mind. And the Apostle Paul says, no, I want to go deeper than that. I don't want this just to be about systematic theology. I want to connect on intention, on meaning. And so a church has got to figure out, what are you about? Well, we're a church. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? 
What are you about? What is your intention? What is, what are you, what is below? I, I didn't ask you what was your theology. I, I asked you what's your mind? What, what is in your heart? What is your intention towards other people? So we got to ask ourselves, what kind of psyche are we operating in, particularly in relationships? So I went to a very clinical definition of, of, of the word psychosis. Psychosis refers to a collection of symptoms that affect the mind where there has been some loss of contact with reality. During an episode of psychosis, a person's thoughts and perceptions are disrupted and they may have difficulty recognizing what is real and what is not. This is a very high level. If you're a psychiatrist here, you know that I've, I haven't done it full justice here, but this is kind of a high, bird's eye view of what psychosis is like. And, but I think as I read this and as I thought about this, it's like this doesn't just go on in minds. This goes on in marriages. This goes on in cultures. This is what's happening to America. This is what's happening to people. We're, we're losing touch with reality. We're, we're losing continuity of thought. We're, we're uh, beginning to have symptoms of, of um, having a hard time having perceptions. And, and so I thought about this, and it's like this definition could easily apply to a marriage. And you think, well, how can a marriage have psychosis? Um, when, a, when a husband and wife have their ideas and their vision and their behavior of a good marriage, and it becomes divergent. All of a sudden, what she thinks is a good marriage and what he thinks is a good marriage are totally two different things. I know when you started dating, you know, you, know, you were like, do you like string beans? Yeah, I like string beans. Oh, my mama, he likes string beans. I like string beans too. And you try to find all these data points of things that you have in together. And then you get this idea that you're different, aren't you, when you started dating and, and you're... You're just like one heart, one idea. It's like, you know, uh, I can't wait to put a ring on it. And it's just it's kind of like going after this relationship and you're so different and unified. But then when you get to about year seven, year seven is the appearance of the psychosis in marriage for a lot of people. When all of a sudden what you wanted out of the marriage and what she wanted out of the marriage are two different things. And you have this one relationship, but now it's departing from the original uh, meaning of the relationship. Psychosis happens in relationship, in uh, workplaces. Everybody has a good idea where the business should go. Okay, I mean, everybody's brilliant. I mean, the boss is an idiot. That's why they were given that job, because they were blooming idiots, and everybody underneath them knows exactly what they need to be doing. Okay, and you see psychosis happening at the workplace all the time. They call it, at least when my generation, it was called the water cooler. I guess you don't call it that anymore. Uh, okay, boy, did I date myself. But that's when, you know, you're sitting around the coffee pot and you and another work, work and you're talking about, yeah, you know, what you would do if you were in charge of this business. And it's like, I think we're missing this. And all, and all of a sudden the boss walks around and you're like, hey, boss, how you doing? And everybody's like cheerful. Yeah, good, good day, going good day. I'll tell you what. You know, I would do this business the way that I do. What is that? That is psychosis. That is when everybody... Now, in the world of business, they try to control psychosis. You know what they call it? Brainstorming. 
I, right? That's what it's called, really. It's like, let's flush out the psychosis by calling it an idea. And everybody, hey, let's throw our ideas out there. But if you're a good leader, you get all these brainstormed ideas, you write them down. And if you're, you, you know, a Brent, you got your, your marker board and you got it all in the squares and you got it all over that, like that. But after brainstorming is done, you with one mind get back to work and do what the corporation is about. Psychosis can happen to a leader. It can happen to a pastor like myself. You can all of a sudden, a leader becomes divergent from the vision and the mission of what the church is supposed to be about. You know, uh, psychosis happens when a five-year-old takes over a family. I've seen it. You know, when a five-year-old, you know, you had two really smart people raising, you know, they, they were, uh, she has a career, he has a career, they both get married together, they're both really smart. They look at people that have children and are like, when we have kids, we're not gonna be stupid like them. You know, you know, if that kid, I would have smacked him on the back of the head, he, he's never gonna talk to me that way. And then you know, all of a sudden you have a child and then they turn five and your little precocious five-year-old daughter runs the house. You know, and you're like, all of a sudden, you just kind of lose it. And a five-year-old's running the family. That's a psychosis. You, in the middle of the family, you've kind of lost what the vision is. Psychosis happens when a church splinters over unforgiven offenses. Okay, let me just tell you, 80% of church growth that is, that is uh, charted in the United States is not actually people becoming Christians. It's just people leaving one church because they were ticked off and they go to another church. Okay, now... We have, a, we have a name for that in, uh, especially, we call it the leading of the Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit's just leading me from Seacoast to Crosstown. Well, let me just tell you, if you're coming to Seacoast to Crosstown because you have a failed relationship in Seacoast, you have come here under psychosis because church is supposed to be about that. There is only one mind. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Any church that loses that mind is in a state of psychosis. I don't mean to get excited about that. I'm glad you're here. I think Seacoast is a great church. But the idea that we would go from church to church because we don't want to deal with offense is we've lost our minds. And unfortunately, that's, it can happen anywhere. So Paul describes the mind of Timothy this way. He said he is someone who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Maybe this is where marriage breaks down. I mean, hasn't, haven't you maybe had a moment or a thought? I don't know if you're genuinely concerned for me. I mean, it's like, what do you mean? No, I don't know if you are genuinely in love with me. Of course I love you. And I got, we got married. Look at that ring. Look at that thing. I mean, any of your friends got a ring that big? You know, it's like, of course I love you. You know, it's like, but it gets to the place where a relationship falls into psychosis, where you're busy doing your thing and you're busy doing your thing. And then all of a sudden there is some real genuine concern of whether or not, do you, are you genuinely concerned about me? So I looked at this because this is really tough. Because I don't have a problem with, uh, I think my, my kids pretty much know I'm genuinely concerned for them. That I'm, a, 
I just happened to be dad out of the bottle. You know, I mean, no, I was never drinking a lot. What I mean is, I mean, it's like when I got poured out as a dad, I was, as a human being, I was a dad from get-go. That's just one of my, one of the things I love doing. I love being a dad. Um, But making sure my wife knows that I genuinely am concerned for her. I mean, genuinely. Remember, we're not talking about data points here, are we? We're not talking about intellect. We're not talking about aptitude. We're not talking about vacations. We're not talking about stovetops. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about down to the deep, to the thing. Does she know that I am genuinely, of, in my heart, concerned for her? And I love what it means. It means true to the nature. Because you can have a marriage that's not true to the nature. I mean, if you're together for the kids, you're not married true to the nature. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to be married for. I don't know. I'd, that'd be a crappy place to be. And maybe you're there, and maybe we can help you today on that, taking this journey. But the, true to the, are you true to the nature? I mean, that's where guys get caught up all the time. Yeah, I can look at porn all day long, as long as I don't cheat on my wife. Well, let me ask you that. Is it true to the nature of marriage for you to get turned on and satisfied by looking at another woman? It's like, so you, you can argue with me all day long whether or not porn's good or not, but the bottom line, it's not true to the nature of, of a marriage. Um, what about it, wives? Boy, it's hard to find, I, and not that I can't find fault with women. I mean, I can find it if I look. One, I don't dare to. Uh, that then the other, the other thing is uh, I just happen to live with an amazing woman. Um, but let me ask you, are you, as, as a wife, are you genuine to the relationship? Genuine to the nature of the relationship? You know? So I looked at this because I had to ask myself, am I a genuine pastor? Like, of course you're genuine. Look how much systematic theology you know. Yeah, I know. Look how much philosophy you know. Yeah, I know that too. Like, well, look how the church is Church is growing. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, you own property. Well, I know. But those are all data points, aren't they? That's all they are. They're just data points. My stand on eschatology, it's just a data point. And so over the years, I could be honest with you, I haven't genuinely loved people. I genuinely love the job. I just don't genuinely like people. <laughs> And it's, it's, you say, well, dude, how dare you? Well, don't worry. You're still married, and I bet you've had some ungenuine moments. You've probably looked your face in the boss and told him to have a good day, and you really want to tell him to go to hell. We've all had disingenuine moments. The Apostle Paul is talking about getting beyond the data points and finding out what are, what are you really about? Are you true to the nature of what God has called you to? I was... Um, uh, saw this letter from John Steinbeck to his son, and I was really touched by it. Uh, John Steinbeck was an early 20th century writer. He wrote uh, Grapes of Wrath of Mice and Men. Uh, he was a Nobel Prize winner for literature. His son Thomas wrote to him and told him he was in love. You know, it was kind of like Thomas's first love. And, and I loved what Steinbeck wrote back to him 
because it kind of showed the difference between psychosis and um, this idea of genuine love, this isopsychos, this, this kind of thing that Paul's talking about. Listen to it. Dear Thomas, first, if you are in love, that's a good thing. That's about the best thing that can happen to anyone. Don't let anyone make it small or light to you. Second, there are several kinds of love. One is a selfish, mean, grasping, egotistical thing which uses love for self-importance. This is the ugly and the crippling kind. The other is an outpouring of everything good in you, of kindness and consideration and respect, not only the social respect of manners, but the greater respect, which is recognition of another person as unique and valuable. The first kind can make you sick and small and weak, but the second can release in you strength and courage and goodness and even wisdom you didn't know that you had. I mean, what a beautiful picture of this thing called relationships and operating in a psychosis of what a relationship is and then oper operating in genuine concern in a relationship. And the Apostle Paul is saying this about Timothy. And you know what's really, it's not sad, sad, but it's, it's like Paul's run into a lot of Christians, a lot of, a lot of churchgoers, a lot of Sundays, a lot of potluck dinners. And he can only say, I have but only one kindred spirit in the whole group? I mean, what a real, Paul's really getting down deep into what's going on inside of our minds. See, I always thought that genuine concern, that the word genuine was superfluous. Well, I put genuine in front of concern. Because there is a such thing as concern and it not being genuine. You know, um, I couldn't be concerned about the results of this church. It's like, uh, I could start every staff meeting and say, hey, what's the budget look like? How much do we have come in today? How much offering do we have this week? You know, I should be concerned about the budget. How many people do we have? Do we have, what? We had over 500 people this week? What? That's awesome. And I could go through that whole routine and not give a flip about any of you. Those are all metrics that pastors are told to observe. But what we've forgotten to observe is the deepest of all metrics, and that's the realm of the psyche, the realm of intention, intention and purpose, and genuine concern for the people of our church. But it's also true in marriage relationships. It's, it's you know, our relationships abound when we are living in isopsychos with the same mind with Christ. Our relationships abound when we are heading in the same direction together. Our relationships abound when we're true to the nature of the relationship by taking share and thought in that relationship. That's when it abounds. A wife flourishes when a husband has genuine concern for her welfare. A husband thrives 
and walks around with his shoulders back with a sense of pride when his wife gives to him the gift of dignity and places in him a true love. It makes me sad that America is suffering from psychosis. We no longer have one mind. Um, we, I mean, I, I just was thinking about, do we stand for the national anthem? Do we kneel for the national anthem? Do we put our hands over the heart? You know, watching the Super Bowl. Wait a minute, there's another national anthem? You know, other than this national anthem? Okay, let me just tell you. A house divided against itself, a house in psychosis will not stand. And in America, we're in a state of psychosis. We, we don't know what we're about. We wouldn't know what to fight for. We've lost the sense of meaning and direction. But the worst thing is, is this happens at home. Husbands and wives. You know, the first five years, okay, I'm just gonna give you that. You guys are, you're running on adrenaline right now. Um, but let me, let me talk to you if you're over, you've been married for 20 years. You're right in that spot where you're married for what? You're married, psychosis is, is kind of messing up the nature of it. You're married for the kids. I know that sounds right, but that's psycho. A marriage is between a man and a woman, and then you invite children to be in, and not to be in the marriage, but to observe and benefit from the blessing of the marriage. But it's like, no, it's all about the kids. Well, let me just say, if you've, it's kind of like Christmas. We say, we'll go through Christmas, and we'll all come to a high level of virtue about mid-December or when we're running out of money, and we'll say it's not about presents anyway, you know, because all of a sudden we ran out of money and virtue replaces that, and we'll say, well, what's it all about? Well, you know, it's all about just seeing those smiles on those kids' faces. It's all about the children. It's all about family. Let me just tell you, that's psycho. It's all about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he was born in a manger in a town known as Bethlehem, and he was declared savior of the world. But you see the slight little, just to move a little bit, and, and it gets off, and it happens to a marriage. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do if you're married, you're not going to do it here. I don't, we, don't, we don't have enough body bags to do it here. But uh, it's, it's to evaluate how genuine your marriage really is. Could you imagine asking that question of your spouse? I mean, is this the marriage that you and I genuinely wanted? How did it get off track? How do we get it back on? What does back on track look like. We've made a shift. Let me challenge you, in any relationship, to do the inventory of the mind. What is the mind of your relationship? Has it developed psychosis? Dads forgetting to be what it means to be a dad. Dads are real good about being in control, aren't we? Because, I mean, we're supposed to be in control. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what parents are supposed to be. But we can be all about being in control. I'm your father. Shut up. Oh, I smack you on the back of the head, you know. Um, just do it because I told you to. And sometimes when the kid's standing in the middle of the road, you need to maybe smack him in the back of the head or tell him to get out of the road because I told you so. But have we vacated what it means to really be a dad? Have we developed psychosis? How about moms? Have you forgot what it means to be a real mom? 
um, husband and wives fighting to assert their will over one another? When did marriage become about sex? You know, when, when did, that's psychosis. It, marriage involves sex, but when did it become about sex? When did the deepest intention and purpose and the meaning get reduced to that? That's psychosis. When did it become about your golf time? When did it become about the kids? When did it become two minds, not isopsychos? Operating with the same mind towards your marriage. Paul breaks, tries to break the psychosis in relationship in Ephesians chapter five. Listen to this. I mean, he, he's challenging because he knows he's got a congregation with a bunch of minds. Everybody, everybody has an opinion of whether or not I should be dressed with like this today, whether or not these shoes are stupid. My wife gave them to me for my birthday. They're awesome. And I don't care if you think they're stupid, but everybody's got an opinion, whether or not the music's too loud, whether it's too, you know, whether I, it was inappropriate that he used the movie Psycho. It scared me. It brought up past memories. He triggered me. I'm crazy. You know, I, mean, I don't know what it's, I mean, you can have an opinion all day long about stuff. And the apostle Paul says, stop it. Therefore, be imitators of Christ, isopsychos. As beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. There's your common mind and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is our one mind. This is, this is the mind that we are supposed to be isopsychos with. That's why... You know, we read a verse out of Ephesians like, I'll, I'll put it up there for Ephesians 5, 22. Yeah, it's just gonna tick you off just looking at it. Yeah, yeah, just, just let it sit in. And now, now you're ticked off. Okay, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, what we're focusing on there is like your mind against his mind, right? But look at the little phrase, as to the Lord. It's an appeal to a greater mind. So, so God is saying, I don't give a flip what you think about your husband. I don't care what kind of doofus he is. I don't care. Yes, he should have replaced that tire before it went flat and you told him a hundred times. It says, give him dignity, give him honor, give him the gift of respect. Why? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. It's like, that's okay. Church isn't about it making sense to you. It's about using a... Uh, an isopsychos, another mind, the same mind that was in Christ. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not an appeal. It's like, well, I love her. I don't cheat on her. I just look at a little porn, gamble a little bit on the side. She doesn't know about it. It's just money I make on the side, and I just kind of put it in my, my uh, DraftKings account. And, you know, but she doesn't know won't hurt her. You know, or as long as I look and don't touch... And, and the Apostle Paul's like, listen, dude, I don't need you to be in your mind. I need you to be in somebody else's mind. I need you to be in the mind of Christ. And so it's interesting. He appeals to wives, to husbands. Then he goes on to talk about bosses and employees. Then he goes on to talk about dads and children and children and moms. And he does this. He's appealing. He's like, he's appealing to isopsychos. Let us walk with the same mind. Whose mind? The Republicans? The Democrats? There's a lot of psycho there. This one mind, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. 
That is our one mind. He's not asking you to do this with your mind. So it's time to sit down and talk vision and intention with your spouse. Uh, Ladies and guys, if you're dating, Paul uses a phrase and it really is antiquated in our culture because we're not an agrarian culture. But he says, do not be unevenly yoked with an unbeliever. You know, this idea was like, yoke. You know, was this an egg thing? You know, I mean, it's like, no, I mean, he's, he's talking about, you know, the yoke you put on the back of two animals. And it's like, what's he mean? It means that if you're dating right now, you need to be isopsychos with somebody who has the mind of Christ. And if you think you're going to be able to turn him into a Christian, you know, you get him to come to church and you're going to be able to turn it, Paul's like, no. No, you need to be looking for somebody that's already got the mind of Christ, not somebody you're trying to convert into the mind of Christ. And it goes for guys with girls also. So I think it's time to sit down and have a vision and intention conversation with one another. It's it's time to rediscover our first love, as Jesus says in the book of Revelation. He says, you have lost your first love. It's like, well, I still love Jesus. He's like, yeah, I know. I know you got the data points. You were baptized in 1981. You got your gift of speaking in tongues in 1982. You, you, you know, did this and all that, you know. He's like, that's cool. But so you left the psyche of this relationship, the intentionality, the purpose, the vision of what was going on. Yeah, you're doing church. I mean, how can America do so much church and be so wrong? It's because America's doing church wrong. We're doing religion right. We just lost the mind of Christ towards things. But that's a big picture thing that I'm really not involved with other than here. And to be honest with you, I'm more concerned about your marriages. I'm concerned about your relationship with your son. I'm concerned about how you interact with your next, next door neighbor and in your workplace that you go to every single day. Paul, speaking to all relationships in our lives, he says this in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, so that whether I come and I see you or whether I'm absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's like, man, let me just hear that you guys are just, you have not abandoned the mind of Christ. One breath, one spirit, one soul. So as we move into this moment of expressions, and that's really what this moment is at the time where now you're in control and it's just you and Jesus, you and God talking together. We present you communion. Um, But let me ask you this. Does your spouse know that you genuinely love them? And, and I know that you think, oh, of course they do. I haven't cheated on them. That's what most guys say. I'm speaking for men here. Now, I haven't cheated on her. I'm not looking at porn. Yeah, I genuinely love her. It's like, no, 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 no. Does she know in her language and in her heart that you genuinely, you are true to the nature of the relationship that she wanted with you? Is she concerned for, to take thought of, to share in? 
and just turn that to husbands. Does your husband know that? I mean, I know ladies, I, and I deal with a lot of marriages. Ladies, you can, you can turn into moms with your husband real fast. I mean, you just kind of feel like, well, his mom did a sucky job. It's not my turn. I'll tell him what kind of man he needs to be. Now, how about just letting him know that you're genuinely concerned about him, that you love him? How about speaking, speak courage into him, speak strength into him, speak dignity into him? How about your kids? I know you want to send them to the best schools. I'm only doing this, son, because it's going to make you a better man. But does he know you genuinely love him? How about the people at work, your coworkers? How about your employees? Another question, and this is the toughest question, and it's the one that I had to ask myself. Um, not do they know that you love them. The question is, do you? Do you genuinely love them? Um, or are you into a love like Steinbeck said that is more self-serving, that I love them as long as it's good for me, as long as it makes me feel good? And so if you're here and you're like, okay, crap, you got me, because that's where I, it gets me, I have modified my human behavior as much as I can. And I'm, being, I'm talking about me. I really have. I'm trying to be nicer. Uh, I'm, not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be chauvinist. I'm not trying to be racist. I'm not trying to be contr overly controlling. I'm not trying to, I, mean, I'm, I, I have modified my behavior as much as I can. But to genuinely concern myself with you, guess what that takes? An act of God. We are told by the Apostle Paul that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead can also quicken our lives. That the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of you guys here, you want to love your wives. I mean, really. I mean, I really think that there's probably very few genuinely evil people here. You really would like to have a nice marriage. And you've done whatever she's asked you to do. And it doesn't seem to be good enough. And you've run out of things to do. You need God, man. You know, I, all of us need God to help us to love better. And I can tell you, I've made this a prayer of mine. God, let me, I know I'm a pastor. I know my, I know it's on my W-2. I know it's someplace on our website that I'm the pastor. I, I know that nobody else seems to want the job, but, but God, make me genuine. Make me really love these people. Because I, I've gone as far as a 65-year-old guy can go in modifying my behavior. And God's like, good. Now, with the Holy Spirit, we're going to go further. Paul said in our theme verse that your love may abound still more and more. Meaning that love to the end of where you can love. And Paul says there, I want you to abound more and more. He's like, I'll bring you to the end of your temperament, bring you to the end of your compassion, bring you to the end of your, your empathy as a human being. And at the end, when you've done it all, now I want you to abound more and more. But I've done everything I can. Yes, I know. But through my Holy Spirit in you, more love can be loved. It makes me realize as we're serving you communion today, 
You know, again, I always wonder why, why do that to Jesus? I mean, why not just like have him die and that would have been good enough? Why do it publicly? Um, why have him naked? Um, why drain all the blood from his body? I mean, why? And I think about it is because God wanted to remove all question on whether or not he was genuine about his love. There was no drop left back. And that in Christ, we find the genuine outpoured to the very end of giving in love. This is the mind that God wants us to have for one another. This is our kindred spirit. And if you're like me, you're like, turn the other cheek? Heck no. It's like, then you're at the end of yourself and you need the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus. Father God, we come into this moment and you have given us representation of your blood and your body so that you so that we would know that love was genuine that love was selfless that love was real and God you want us to have this kind of love towards one another so Father, there's so many people here that are just like me. I've been as nice as I can. But God, give me more. And so Father, as we take the bread and the cup in remembrance, we ask that you would fill each and every one of us with the Holy Spirit, a better mind. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help me, Father. God, it, it takes more than buying my kid a car and putting them through college. Help me to have genuine love. It takes more than just putting a ring on it and living in the same house and sharing a mortgage. Help me have genuine love. It takes more than putting up a steeple and putting a cross on that steeple to make a real church. God, help us to have genuine love for one another. Fill us with your Holy Spirit.